Hey, Wiki listeners, it's Rachel. And Victor, did you know I host the fantastic NYC Talent Show every Monday night at the Parkside Lounge in New York City? It's an off-off Broadway showcase where you can see New York's underground performance art up close. We've got weekly special guests like Colin Quinn, Janine Garofalo, Tone Bell, and lots more. Use the code WIKILISTEN for a special discount on tickets when you go to nyctalentshow.com. That's nyctalentshow.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Wikipedia page for the Xenotext. Welcome to Wikilisten, the podcast where we read Wikipedia pages and provide commentary. I'm Victor Vernado, KSN. And I'm Rachel Teichman, LMSW, reminding you to subscribe. That's right, everybody. Subscribe so that we can all be one. One what? I don't know. But I'm assuming that the Xenotext has something to do with people getting together from many species. Oh, I don't know. But thank you, Jim Malone, for suggesting this. Yes, thank you, Jim Malone. <laughs> all right. The Xenotext. The Xenotext is an ongoing work of bio-art by experimental Canadian poet Christian Bulk. The primary goal of the project is twofold. First, a poem encoded as a strand of DNA is implanted into the bacterium Deinococcus radiodurans. Second, the bacterium reads this strand of DNA and produces a protein, which is also an intelligible poem. Boak himself describes the project as, quote, a literary exercise that explores the aesthetic potential of genetics and the modern milieu. By using the extremophile D. radiodurans as a host for this work, the ambition is that the two poems may even outlive human civilization. Inspiration. Boak cites three main sources of inspiration for the Xenotext. The first is a project by Pak Chung Wong, a scientist at the Pacific Northwest National Library, in which he and his team enciphered the lyrics to It's a Small World After All as a plasmid of DNA and successfully implanted it in Danococcus radiodurans. Wong's goal was to demonstrate the potential of information encoded into DNA and stored in microorganisms. Boak borrowed this goal of long-term storage and was likely influenced by Wong in his decision to host his poems in D-Radiodurans. The second is the speculation put forth by Paul Davies, a professor for SETI at the Australian Centre for Astrobiology in Sydney, and others that there may be messages already encoded in DNA that are extraterrestrial in origin. Davies believed that DNA-encoded information may be the most efficient way for distant civilizations to make contact with one another. Boak, rather than waiting for such extraterrestrial transmission, seeks to take advantage of DNA's potential for communication in the present. The third is the work of pioneering bioartist Eduardo Kack, who enciphered a sentence from the biblical story of Genesis into a strand of DNA, implanted it into E. coli, 
and subjected the microbe to large doses of radiation, thereby introducing edits to the text. However, Boak has expressed dismissal towards this experiment of Keck's, arguing that it does not seem radically different from the act of inserting a copy of the Bible into the saddlebag of a donkey and then letting the donkey wander on its own through a minefield. I think that, if possible, the inserted text must change the behavior of the donkey in some profound way, perhaps converting it to Christianity, if you like. Wow. (laughs) Oh, it's so sad to see scientists fighting. (laughs) They should be embarrassed. Oh, my God. The Poems. Boke seeks to distinguish the Xenotext from its predecessors by going beyond the faithful transmission of information via DNA encoding. In summary, Boke hopes to not only store his poem as a strand of DNA embedded in a living microorganism, but also to enlist the microorganism as a co-author of the poem when the microbe transcribes the DNA poem into a strand of complementary RNA, the nucleotides that constitutes a strand of RNA and, by extension, the amino acid sequence that the RNA encodes, will also encode a legible poem. Volk further hopes that the microbe will then translate the RNA poem into a protein that reflects the full nucleotide sequence and exists as a protein poem. Protein poem. The Xenocode. To accomplish this feat, Volk needed to develop two poems, quote, that were mutual ciphers of each other, such that the first poem could be translated from English into DNA nucleotides, from DNA nucleotides into RNA nucleotides, from RNA nucleotides into a protein, and finally, the RNA protein back into another legible English poem. Now, I'm wondering if Boke is independently wealthy or is somebody funding this? <laughs> maybe both. I want, maybe they, they, that could be true. That could he's be true. both independently wealthy and someone is funding it. That's how he stays independently wealthy. Thus, Boke's cipher, the Xenocode, required several internal codes relating what he termed the plain text, the codons, and the cipher text. The plain text was the first poem written in English to be translated into DNA. Boke had arbitrarily assigned a letter of the alphabet to each of 26 codons, these being chosen out of the total of 64. These DNA codons would then be transcribed into the complementary RNA codons, which could then be translated into an amino acid sequence. The second poem, the ciphertext, is created by translating this RNA amino acid sequence back into English using Boke's substitution cipher. This substitution cipher consists of mutually pairing off every letter in the alphabet, thus mimicking the way that DNA and RNA codons are mutually paired. Orpheus and Eurydice. Determining the makeup of this substitution cipher such that the two poems could be written simultaneously proved to be very difficult as there are, quote, 7,905,853,580,625 ways to pair up all the letters in the alphabet so that they mutually refer to each other. That number was so big that I had to stop and breathe a couple times. That's a big number. I can't even count that high. Boke, to expedite the process, wrote a Perl program into which he could input a cipher and in return get a list of English word pairs that exist in each cipher. 
Spoke churned through several such ciphers, keeping track of working word pairs on the way, such as abased into iciest or binary into caring for cipher I-N-G-A-R-Y-786. He also sought, however, to write poems that meditated on the relationship between creation and language, hence another creative constraint that made the task even more challenging. It took Boke four years to find a suitable cipher and complete the two poems, which he dubbed Orpheus and Eurydice. Taking inspiration from the ancient legend, the two poems are each 14 lines, making them sonnets. As for the meaning of the poems, Boke explains, Orpheus is written by me as a kind of masculine assertion about the aesthetic creation of life, while Eurydice is written by the microbe as a kind of feminine refutation around the woebegone absence of life. The two poems resemble Petrichon sonnets in dialogue with each other, much like poems written in the elegiac pastoral tradition of the herd boy addressing the nymphettes. What's a nymphette? A nymphette, I, I believe it is like a tiny nymph, which oh. in turn is, I think, a fairy, like a sexy fairy lady thing. Oh. <laughs> okay. Further, the gene sequence is coded such that the resulting protein is tagged by the red fluorescent protein mm, cherry. Thus, a red fluorescence by the microbe will signify the successful creation of the protein, a circumstance self-reflexively noted by the word rosy in Eurydice. Wiki listeners, you can support us by listening to this message while you think about the word mm, cherry for the rest of your life. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thank you for listening to that message, everyone. And uh, if you wanted to know, Mcherry is a member of the Mfruits family of monomeric red fluorescent proteins. So now you know. I like how it's Mfruits. Yep. Because I like fruits, so Mfruits. Progress on the Xenotext. Boke finished writing Orpheus and Eurydice in the spring of 2011 after four years of work, though he conceived of the project as early as 2002 and was conversation with Stuart A. Kaufman, a MacArthur Fellow, then the i Chair for the Institute of Biocomplexity and Informatics at the University of Calgary, where Boke teaches as early as 2006. I'm going to say it, informatics sounds made up. 
Maybe it is. During this period, Boak taught himself computer programming skills, genetics, and proteomics, so as to fully understand his search. His so as to fully understand his research. Thus, after nine years of research and conceptual tri trial and error, Boak finally set to work on making his experiment a reality. First, he simulated the protein encoded by his DNA poem on a supercomputer at the University of Calgary's Institute for Biocomplexity and Informatics (IBI). AlphaFold had yet to be developed, so Boak used the available Rosetta software to predict the protein folding. Then, he sent his specifications to a gene design and synthesis company, DNA 2.0, which manufactured his DNA poem in the form of a plasmid and sent it back to IBI. In March 2011, biologists at IBI implanted the plasmid into a strain of E. coli. All right. Okay. I think uh, we have our answer is that Boak is a professor and he's teaching. And then in his off time, he's using his resources for his DNA poem. Sounds about right for a professor. This is just like his, you know, his, uh, his, his this is like him going home and working on a 5,000 piece puzzle. He's like, this is so much fun. He's this is relaxing for him. At first, the experiment appeared successful. IBI informed Bogue that the E. coli were fluorescing red signifying that the DNA to RNA translation and RNA to protein transcription conversions had taken place. Boak celebrated this apparent success with a series of tweets on March 31st, 2011 and an article in Poetry Foundation. In early April 2011, Boak exhibited a model of the protein constructed out of Molimod components at the Berry Art Gallery in Manchester. However, in the third week of April 2011, Boak was notified by IBI that the protein poem produced by the E. coli, despite fluorescing, had not been formed properly. Oh, too bad, Boak. I know. The lab had run an electrophoresis and determined that the protein poem was only half of the expected size. Dr. Su Huang... Boak's partner at IBI, after Dr. Stuart Kaufman retired, was unsure why exactly the protein poem was being destroyed, but hypothesized that the issues had arisen due to the repetitive nature of the DNA sequence. That is, the bacterium might have mistaken the DNA poem for a virus and attacked it. Boak, recounting, recounting the setback, quipped, I had, in effect, engineered not the first microbial writer, but the first microbial critic. <laughs> That is such a positive state of mind. That is what science is all about. Boke is hilarious. That is some true science language right there. After months of failed attempts on October 3rd, 2012, Boke received word from DNA 2.0 that the company's labs had gotten E. coli to successfully express the protein poem in full, making Boke, quote, the first person in history to design a microorganism capable of writing a meaningful text in response to an enciphered gene. In 2013, Boak announced that he was collaborating with a lab at the University of Wyoming to implant the DNA poem into the true target bacterium, the file D-radiodurans. However, working with D-radiodurans has proved more challenging. 
In a 2015 interview, Boak expressed frustration with the bacterium's lack of cooperation. Quote, The extremophile is more difficult to engineer, and the protein that is produced is not fully expressed. It's either destroying it too quickly for us to characterize it, or it's censoring it during its production. We can't really tell, but it's not making the entire protein stably. By 2015, the Xenotex had been ongoing for 14 years and had required over $150,000 in grant money. Well, that's an... Now we, now we know even more. There's an answer. <laughs> I wonder if someday people will look back on the way that I'm using our grant money and and say and, and like and read an article and make light of what I was doing with my time. I wonder. Um, do you make light of how you use your time? Yes. Yeah, that's what I thought. Wanting to release something tangible for the public, Boke published the Xenotext book, A Demonic Grimoire, that provides a scientific framework for the project with a series of poems, texts, and illustrations. Though book one does not document the history or the science behind the Xenotext, it seeks to set the conceptual groundwork for the second volume, which will document the experiment itself. Several articles and interviews in 2015 and 2016 followed the publication of Book One. Since then, however, a few updates have been released. The current state of the project is unclear, and the Xenotext Book Two remains forthcoming. The project was referenced in the Peter Watts novel Echopraxia, appearing towards the end of the novel. And that's where this article ends. Echopraxia is a hard science fiction novel by Canadian writer Peter Watts. It is a sidequel to his 206 novel, Blind Sight, and the two novels make up the Firefall series. Sounds pretty nerdy. Sidequels. I think sidequels, I think they should do more sidequels as far as movies go. I think I've only seen like one sidequel movie, and it wasn't really a sidequel. It was a sequel that that was kind of a sidequel because it was Back to the Future 2. Because in Back to the Future 2, he goes back in time to Back to the, the movie, Back to what's happening in the movie Back to the Future 1, and does things in the background while the first movie is happening, which is pretty awesome. Sounds pretty nerdy. It's said on here that he put out some tweets, but now that Twitter is called X, what is a tweet called? Is it called a Y? Um, a Y? Why would it be a Y? Well, because now it's called X, so maybe what you put out is called Y. Oh my gosh. It's a good thing you don't work in marketing. I will, I kind of do. This has been the Wikipedia page for the Xenotext. Thanks for listening to Wikilisten. You can find us at wikilisten.com and on all social media and on TikTok at Wikilisten, except for X, which is at wiki underscore listen. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts because it really helps us out. Check us out on YouTube for more content. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button with your marketing work. If there's a particular page you'd like us to read, let us know. We will read it. 